Good morning. My name is Kyle. Let me pray for us. Open my mouth, Lord, that I might proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and his life and grace to ruined and unworthy sinners. May we know the, the way you expose us and embrace us through the word of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was October 14th, 2003, and Wrigley Field was filled with hope and enthusiasm. You see, finally, the Cubs figured that the curse had been broken. They were up three runs at the end of the pennant race, and, and they had the game in the bag. It's the eighth inning. They have two outs down. Uh, and then all of a sudden, a pop fly goes up towards the wall. It's going to be a foul ball. It is right on the edge. And then, out of nowhere, Steve Bartman... A Cubs fan intercepts the ball. It was a turning point. The Cubs don't catch the out, doesn't send it to the ninth inning. The Florida Manners actually go on to score eight runs that inning. And then they take the series. It was an epic failure. A epic failure. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you and I have stress dreams about. <laughs> and when it happens, you don't want anyone to know. But unfortunately for Steve Bartman, everyone knew. In fact, it was so bad that he had to be escorted by police to his home. His name and his address were taken off every kind of public service. He was under witness protection program for a little while. And after that, uh, even in time, he didn't want anyone to know about it. I mean, an epic failure is a public, humiliating failure where you just want to run away and hide. And Bartman did. Uh, he, was, he was offered multiple times as kind of a peace offering, invitations to Wrigley Field. Even as a VIP, he has not been back since. In 2008, he was offered $25,000 for his autograph. He declined. In 2011, just in case it wasn't public enough, ESPN did an entire documentary on it. <laughs> Two hours of watching his epic failure. And now, preachers are preaching about it. <laughs> he would not appear on ESPN's documentary in 2011. Like almost a decade after the fact. 
And he was offered $100,000 to appear in a Super Bowl commercial. And he wouldn't do it. Have you ever had an epic failure that is so bad that you would not take $100,000, $125,000? I mean, this is the kind of thing where it's an epic failure that you don't want anyone to know about and you would never want publicized. In the passage that we have just read, Peter has his biggest failure publicized. Let me set the scene for you. Jesus has been taken into custody, and it is a kangaroo court. They are not trying to find out the truth. They are trying to find Jesus guilty. And, and there, as Jesus is undergoing the investigation and the questions, Peter follows. Because remember, Peter had promised never to leave Jesus and never forsake Jesus. And so, in verse 54, Peter tries to fulfill that promise by following, the text says, quote, at a distance. He enters the courtyard. How did Peter get into the courtyard? I mean, if you're rocking up in the courtyard of the high priest, you have to have an inn. What was Peter's inn? We're not sure. But here's what we do know. We know that it was late in the evening, and like most arid climates, it had gotten very cool. The servants of the high priest had started a fire. There, Peter warmed himself by the fire, and as the glow of the fire started catching on to his face, one of the servant girls there started staring at him. You know the way you stare at someone if you're not quite sure you know them or not, and you think you do? Well, at some point, she got to the point where she thought, oh, I'm pretty sure that's him. And so she said, verse 67, you were also with the Nazarene Jesus. Verse 68, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Have you ever denied Jesus? What would it even look like to deny Jesus? I mean, verse 68 says that he denied it, but I want you to pay close attention. This does not actually look like denial. Because the servant girl, she just says, you were with the Nazarene Jesus. I mean, she's not even accusing him of necessarily being a follower. She's just saying, hey, I saw you around this guy. And notice how Peter responds. He says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Uh, you're not making any sense. Sorry, I don't, I don't speak your language or... Uh, I think you're stuttering, or I'm sorry, I can't hear. There's a lot of mumbling going on. I mean, that doesn't look like denial. That's not, he, he's not denying, he's evading. And if this is denial, it's certainly not overt denial. And that's the point. What does denial look like? It can look as subtle and as simple as not taking the opportunity to profess your allegiance in Jesus when given the chance. And when put that way, unfortunately, I think I can relate to Peter more than I would like to admit. 
because I have lots of opportunities to profess my allegiance to Jesus. It usually happens when I'm sitting in a chair and someone drapes a cape around me and they start cutting my hair. And then they say things like, so what do you do for a living? How'd you get to Santa Barbara? And I'm like, I just want to cut, have my hair cut. I'm usually getting my hair scheduled, my hair cut at a time when I want to process my sermon. So I don't really want to talk. Can I just sit here in peace? No. Or it happens in the dentist chair. Oh, what do you do? Oh, uh, uh, uh. I, I see here you, you work at a church. Oh, uh, uh, uh. You know, the world seems to be really bad lately. Have you noticed what's going on? What do you think about that book, Revelations? You know, and I'm like, all right. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> I have lots of opportunities to profess my allegiance to Jesus, and every time I avoid it, I'm doing the same thing that Peter is doing. And it's not just me. It's you too. You so, say, well, okay, I'm, I'm not a pastor, so I don't get to say, you know, I don't have to say I'm a pastor and that kind of... Yeah, but anytime someone asks you about your profession or how'd you get into it, I would hope that whatever your profession is, it's something that Jesus called you into. I would hope that you understand your mission and purpose here in Santa Barbara is that the Lord led you here in his providential arrangements. I would hope that when someone asks you what you're studying or why you do foster care or uh, why you help out in, in Alameda Park or why you have to go to that event, you would say... Because there's this man named Jesus, who is also God, who lived and died for me, and I am everything. See, any time we are given the opportunity to confess our allegiance in Jesus, he expects us to. And any time we don't, it's a denial. It's a form of denial. Well, Jesus, well Peter, he, he evades the situation verbally. And he also tries to avoid it physically. He gets up and he goes through the courtyard. But that pesky servant girl, she just keeps following him around. And in verse 69, she says to the bystanders, This man was one of them. But, verse 70... Again, he denied it. What does denying Jesus look like? It can be as simple as denying association with his followers. Did you see that? The question or the statement that's posed is this man is one of them. And Peter denied, I'm not one of those people. You know, a lot of us have a hard time associating with Christ's followers and not Christ. Anne Rice grew up in the Catholic Church, and she left the Catholic Church at 18. In 1998, through some research, she read the book, N.T. Wright's book, Resurrection and the Son of God. Because of that, she had a conversion back to Catholicism and to Jesus. But 10 years later, she had had enough and she said in 2010 on Facebook, because that's where you announce these kind of things, for those who care, and I understand if you don't, 
Today I quit being Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ, as always, but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disreputabous, and deservingly infamous group. For ten years I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. What is Anne Rice saying? When she says she's quitting Christianity, notice that she's not saying I'm quitting Christ. She says, I remain committed to being follower of Christ. But I do not want to identify or belong to, quote, this quarrelsome, hostile, disreputous, and deservingly infamous group. In other words, I will identify with Christ, but I will not identify with his followers. And a lot of us know what that's like. Sorry, they're saying, check my connection pack, which I've done. Maybe it'll work. Um, Anne Rice is saying, I, I'm committed to Jesus, but not to his followers. You know, a lot of us have a hard time joining a church. And one of the reasons we have a hard time joining a church is because if we were to join a church or a particular body, then we start to identify with that body, and their identity starts to become part of our identity. And that's challenging. Because if their identity starts to become part of our identity, then, well, they're just things about their identity that we don't want rubbing off on us. And I understand. I understand. And so some of us are looking for that perfect church, and we can't find a church that is maybe woke enough, or a church that is conservative enough, or a church that is intellectually has enough intellectual integrity. Or we can't find a church that is cool enough and socially with it or that understands social issues enough. Or maybe the church is just too retrogressive for us. But it's always too something. And we don't want that too something to rub off on us. And listen, I get it. Or maybe we've joined the church, but we do so with caveats. Whenever we say we're part of a church or a church body, we say, well, I'm part of this church body, but I'm not one of those Christians, or I don't agree with these things, or I'm not like this. And there are the justifications and the qualifications that we have to give just to make sure that someone does not confuse that we are one of those quarrelsome, hostile, disreputable, disruptive, reputous and deservingly infamous people. But here's what we need to understand when we do that. Jesus Christ has so identified himself with his people that he calls them his own body. And because of that, we cannot disassociate ourselves from his body without disassociating ourselves from Jesus himself. You see, you can't get Christ's righteousness without getting the church's nerdiness. You can't get Christ's perfection without getting the church's imperfection. You can't identify with one without identifying the other. 
You have to come in both. And if you do, it is a form of denial. I'm not one of those people, Peter said. What does it look like to deny Jesus? What well, can look like not professing him and your allegiance in him when given the chance. It can look like denying association and identifying with his people. It can also just be really blatant. We pick up the story in verse 70. After a little while, the bystander said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And there it is. The blatant denial. And it's worse than you think. Notice that the text says that this occurs after a little while. Which means that Peter had some time to think about it. He had some time to recant. This wasn't like all of the sudden. Have you ever had that experience? You do something wrong, you know it's wrong, and then you have some time to recant, but you don't. And then the longer the wait, the harder it gets. So, recently, I've decided, since I've been here for eight years, why not decide to, why not take up surfing? So I'm learning to surf. Uh, thus far, I have not gone, progressed very far. The only thing that I've learned is how to get on my wetsuit. And <laughs> notice I said get on. I haven't even learned how to get it off yet. So the other day, it took me like 10 minutes. I was trying out this, on this wetsuit in a parking lot, and eventually I said, um, Joshua, I need you to help me get this off. And at which point we heard these guys in a truck just laughing hysterically. So that's as far as I've gotten, which means that I am a danger in the ocean, okay? And I was out in the ocean the other day, and I'm going, and this gal is, um, she's getting on a wave, and she's coming at me, and then she sees me, and then she just kind of rolls her eyes and, like, falls back, right? And I was totally in her way. So I'm like, I need to apologize, but she's kind of far away right now. I need to apologize, but I'll just be cool about it and act like it, you know, it's nobody's fault. Maybe it's her fault. She should have just kept going. Maybe she couldn't catch that. Anyway, I just need to apologize. And like, I wait and wait and wait. And then like 45 minutes later, I'm like right next to her. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry about that earlier. I was in your way. Um, and she, she's like, oh, I forgot all about it, thankfully. Yeah, it's probably because it's 45 minutes later. <laughs> now, why do I say that? Not because me being in the way of another surfer is such a big sin, but to say, if I can't admit fault then, what about when it's something like really serious and really sinful? He had a while to wait. And he didn't. He didn't say it. And then he's put in a corner because our hearts can get so hard. If you want to know how hard, look at verses 70 and 71. She says, you're a Galilean. See, his accent, it gave him away, which I can relate to. And he's put in a corner. What do we do when we're in a corner? You know, we got two options at that point. We can either come clean or double down. And if we've been hiding our sin, if once we start digging ourselves in the hole of our sin, 
it is hard to come back out. And we double down. The stakes get higher and higher and higher. It's like we keep on at the gambling table. And we start throwing everything away. And here Peter throws everything away. Don't believe me? Look at verse 71. The English translations say that Peter began to invoke a curse on himself. But what you need to know is that there is no object to the word curse. In other words, it just says he began to invoke a curse. And so the question is, is who did Peter begin to invoke the curse on? Your English translators have softened it by assuming that it was Peter, but who is Peter trying to disassociate with? And what would be the best way of disassociating with somebody? Pliny the Younger, who was a later historian under the emperor Trajan, said that when Trajan would try Christians, he would ask them three times, are you a Christian? And the way that they would show, a person would show their innocence when they were being tried, is by cursing Jesus. Because Pliny said that is something which a Christian could not do. Who does Peter curse? I don't think that Peter called for God to damn. I think Peter damned God. He cursed Jesus. I do not know the man. He is a to hell with him. How could he? How could Peter deny Jesus like that? How could Peter deny Jesus like that considering all that he's experienced? For the last three years, from the first day when Jesus called him on the boat and said, go, let down your net over there, and it was the biggest catch of fish that he had ever seen, to going to his mother-in-law's house who was sick and on her deathbed and seeing Jesus heal her. I mean, Peter has been up on the mountain. He has seen Moses, and he has seen Elijah, and he has seen the transfiguration, and he has been down to the sea. He has walked on water with Jesus. He has been through it all. And yet he still denies him. How? Well, Mark gives us a clue. Look in verse 68. 68 says that he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Verse 72 says, immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. What do you know about roosters? They strut. They're cocky. It's Mark's little way of showing us what the problem is. You see, when Peter remembers Jesus, he doesn't remember just Jesus' prediction. He also remembers the context of that prediction, I would say. He remembers how in verse 29, he so boldly and emphatically said, even though they all fall away, I will not. He remembers how he said, I will die with you if I must, and I will not deny you. Do you know what Peter's downfall was? thinking that he was beyond downfall. 
It was Peter saying, I could never. And that means that if you were in this room and you were saying, how could Peter? I would never. Watch out. Therefore, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. The Apostle Paul writes. You see, none of us are above epically failing Jesus Christ. And this text gives the lie to the idea that if you follow Jesus enough, or you've grown enough, or you've come into a place of spiritual maturity enough, if you've had enough doctrine and enough service and enough life experience, and that means that you are beyond this. Because here's the paradox of the Christian life. As much as you grow, and I do believe you grow in Jesus Christ, you never get beyond first base, and you never get beyond total and absolute dependence on him. And therefore, as soon as you let go, even for a moment, guess what? You can fall. You can fail. I can fail. And we are only one second away, one moment away, one loosening of the grip away from what Peter did. So therefore, there is no coasting in the Christian life. You know, Peter's threefold denial is matched earlier by his threefold inability to stay alert. Stay alert, Peter, Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he didn't. Stay alert, Peter, and he didn't. Stay alert, Peter, and he didn't. And Peter's denial is also matched by his threefold inability to understand Jesus' revelation of himself as Messiah. You see, sins of omission, not being intentional, not grabbing on and grasping intentionally, lead to sins of commission. You cannot coast and say, well, I'm going to coast now because I've done so much in the past. You can never let up. You can never let up or let go of Jesus. Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and he broke down and wept. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there where you've just broke down and wept? See, some of us have a hard time relating to Peter, and we say, how could Peter? But others of us, we don't have a hard time at all. We know exactly the place that Peter is in. We know what it means to think we're beyond it, to have served Jesus for a long time and do something that we say, how could I? One night, my old, I just moved recently and we were in a house for eight years here. It's one thing that I actually miss getting rid of in that house. And it's a crack. It's in my bathroom sink. The crack's there in the bathroom sink because one night I came home from a session meeting and I just banged it so hard. Because I was so upset. And the crack reminds me That even though I thought I was beyond it, 
I thought I was beyond explosions of anger. I thought I was beyond using physical force and violence. You never get beyond it. And you always have to hold on to Jesus. In the movie, our book turned movie, Kite Runner, there are, there's uh, boys in Saudi Arabia and they have a kite flying contest and the kites have little pieces of glass on them. And there's a contest where all the boys go out and they fly their kites and what they try to do is cut down the lines of other people's kites. And there's this little boy named Aram. And, or Aram, or yeah, uh, I'm sorry, Amir. And Amir is really good friends with um, Hassam. And Amir is the one flying the kite and he wins. And Hassam, his, his buddy, goes off to get the losing kite. It's like the prize thing. And Amir loses track of him. And then he finally finds him. And when he finds him, he sees his friend being abused very badly by these older boys. And he looks down the alley and he sees it and then he walks away. And the, the gut-wrenching thing about it is that Hassan is sitting there actually getting abused because he wouldn't get rid of this kite and he wouldn't let it go because he said, no, Amir is my friend and I'm going to bring this to him. And the rest of his life, Amir is racked with guilt and he pushes Hassan away. There's this juxtaposition between Peter and Jesus in this text. And as Peter is outside denying Jesus and giving away everything, Jesus is inside giving away nothing for Peter. And he broke down and wept, and I wonder how did he ever return? And maybe you know what that's like to let down Jesus like that, to have followed him for a long time. And then to fail him. Through words, through deeds. Through abandoning the one who loved you for, for a moment saying, to heck with it, I'm going to do what I want to do. And you say, Kyle, is there any hope for me? Is there any recovering from what I've done? Well, I want you to consider Peter. And I want you to consider the text before you. Because virtually all scholars... And anyone who studied it believes that Peter stands behind Mark's gospel. And that means that the story that you have before you is Peter's story. And that means that while Peter fails to confess Jesus momentarily, he doesn't fail ultimately to confess Jesus. The gospel of Mark is his confession. And that means that while Peter fails epically, he does not fail finally. And the question that we all have to ask is this, how did he come back? How did he recover from such 
an epic failure? How come he didn't run and hide like Steve Barman? How come he didn't push away his friend like Amir? You know, some of you are hiding things. And there are things in your life that you say, I could never tell anyone about this. Some of it's failure, some of it's shame, some of it's physical maladies, mental illness, addictions. Some of you are wrestling demons that you say, I could never, ever, ever tell anyone about this. And you look at something like this and you say, how did Peter come clean? How did he come out in the open? How did he say this? Here's how. He found someone who knew everything about him. He found someone who knew his deepest, darkest secret. He found someone who knew his epic failure and loved him anyway. You see, Jesus, he was not caught off by Peter's failure. In fact, he predicted it, verse 72, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Jesus came for Peter even though he knew his failure. And he went to the cross for Peter and he continued to go to the cross for Peter even though he knew his failure. He wasn't like, what? Why am I even here? Look at what you've done. He's like, this is exactly why I'm here. Because I knew who you are. And I know what you've done. And if you're looking for heroes in this Bible, you will find that they are all failures. One of my favorite hometown bands is called Lucero, and they've got this lyric that says, what if all my heroes are the losing kind? I love that line. What if all my heroes are the losing kind? What if every one of my heroes are losers? You know the heroes in this book, like the ones that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11? They're the losing kind. Think of Abraham who trades his wife for his servant girl and has a child through her and then sends her off into the wilderness. Think of Noah, righteous Noah, who fails miserably by getting drunk and exposing himself in front of his children. Think of that hero David, Israel's greatest king and the man after God's own heart, who used his power to manipulate his neighbor and best friend's wife. Yeah, Bathsheba knows me too. And then he has his best friend killed. And think of, think of Peter, who completely and utterly fails. Think of people like Lot who are mentioned, who chose Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of Samson, who is a sexual addict with a violent temper. This book is full of heroes that are all failures, all epically fail, save one. And he goes to the cross for failures. And he goes to the cross for Peter. 
and every failure that Peter has ever committed or will commit. And he goes to the cross for me and for you and every failure that you and I have ever committed. And it's not until we see that, until we realize that the cross exposes us that we can be restored. As Albert Schweitzer said, man can meet God only when he does not imagine himself to be invincible in, tearful in the cheerful self-confidence of Peter in chapter 14, verse 29, but knows that he is placed under the judgment of God. See, have you come to the place where you realize that you are found out? That the cross exposes you, that you have been found out there and that your sin is there exposed and has to be exposed to the judgment of God. But not only that you were exposed, but you are embraced. Because that's what happens for Peter. In one of the most poignant verses in this whole gospel, chapter 16, verse 7, the women come to the tomb and there's an angel there and he has a message for them. He says, tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee and especially tell Peter. And especially tell Peter. It was Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, I want to see you in Galilee so I can embrace you. When Stephen Curtis Chapman, Stephen Curtis Chapman is a singer-songwriter, Christian singer-songwriter, and one day his son, 16, is driving home, Will Franklin, and his little sister is running in the driveway, and tragically he did not see her. He hit her with their SUV, the medical uh, helicopters come and they fly her off to Vanderbilt Hospital where she would later die. Maria Sue was her name. And Stephen Curtis Chapman is getting into the car to go to meet the helicopter at Vanderbilt. And his son is broken down and in tears from this epic failure. And Stephen Curtis Chapman stops and he turns around and he goes and he grabs his son by the shoulders and he says, Will Franklin, your daddy loves you. This was Jesus saying to Peter and grabbing him by the shoulders and saying, Peter, Simon Peter, I love you. And Jesus comes to you and he grabs you by the shoulders in the midst of your epic failure and he says, failing Christian, your Jesus loves you. And when you get that, when you get that you have been completely exposed but also completely embraced, well, that's when you can open up. That's when you can confess. And that's when your failure, your weakness, your shame, they actually become an opportunity to confess Jesus as Savior and all that he has done. That's when you can say with Peter, Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Do you know that? 
Do you know that? Believe it and come to the table and receive it. Amen.